I am very excited to say that we are going to be having Esther Perel back on the show. She is a world-famous sex and couples therapist, and she's going to be talking about infidelity. We are sure that you guys have questions about infidelity between parents. Maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you're working through it right now. Maybe you've been trying to figure out how to talk about it with your kids. No question is off limits here. So send yours in right now to hello at longestshortesttime.com with the subject infidelity. That's hello at longestshortesttime.com with the subject infidelity. So I want to start by just having you guys introduce yourselves. Tell me your names and your relationship to each other. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Tough one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name is Eric Eddings, and I am Carla's husband. And my name is Carla Bruce Eddings, and I am Eric's wife. And um, can you just describe yourselves? Like, people always play roles in their relationships. Tell me the kind of person you are and, like, what kind of role you play in your relationship. Cool. Uh, this is actually fairly easy. <laughs> uh, I'm the planner. How does that play out? A lot of spreadsheets. I like to, uh, <laughs> in general, sometimes, like, going out and doing things, like, it just causes a little bit of anxiety. So I like to think through all the steps, and I think that's a strong contrast. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I would describe myself as a little bit more impulsive. Um, I like going out, doing things, trying new things, more of a, oh, this looks great, let's do it, like tomorrow. And Carla, what do you do? I am a publicist at Riverhead Books, which is part of Penguin Random House. So, Eric, you host a podcast called The Nod. Yes. Can you describe the podcast for people who haven't heard it? Sure. Uh, the Nod is a podcast about Black culture. So we often try to take underexplored moments or things that happen in culture and just kind of tell the story behind it. So on The Nod, Eric, you recently did an episode about a big decision you and Carla made. So what was the thing that you were deciding? So uh, we, ha- we have a daughter, Eve. How old is she? She, uh, she was turning two. She's now two. She had been going to a babysitter. But we had always kind of set a deadline that two is when we would put her in some sort of like formal school. And Carla had the idea <laughs> that we should consider Afrocentric education for her. Carla, can you describe what makes a school Afrocentric? Basically every facet of the school, everything that they learn, everything that they talk about is just focused on Black life and Black culture and what it means to be a Black child growing up in America. So so, so when you started this uh, journey into figuring out whether you were going to send Eve to an Afrocentric school, um, were you on the same page? from day one. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) Well, this is the longest, shortest time. I'm Hillary Frank. Today, Eric Eddings and Carla Bruce Eddings will walk us through their decision over whether to immerse their daughter in Black history in preschool. We'll hear Eric puzzling through the pros and the cons on his show, The Nod, and then we'll check back in with Eric and Carla to hear where they landed. (laughs) 
And so, Eric, tell me about your concerns from the start. Uh, while, while I was familiar with the definition of Afrocentric schools, I had no real concept of what that looked like in practice. Um, and then, two, I was very concerned with the idea of like someone else teaching our daughter how to be black. And and you were afraid that being at an Afrocentric school, there would be like a definition of what is acceptable as a black person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the thing I love about being black is like there's so many different ways to express your own blackness. Carla, um, so the Afrocentric preschool was your idea. Mm-hmm. Um, why was it so important to you? Talk about um, your experience growing up and and why this Afrocentric preschool was was important to you. I was much older when I kind of realized the Darth of like love and appreciation and knowledge I had about my own culture. Um, My parents were always very careful to make sure that I knew Black history um, and had some of that self-love and self-pride. But, you know, you spend most of your time as a child in school. Um, And Where where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. Um, And what kind of a school did you go to? Private schools from K to 12. Um, So they were... They were pretty small. They began getting more diverse, quote unquote, um, as I got older. But the kinds of lessons I was learning and like slavery was a footnote, black culture was a footnote. And like looking back on my elementary school years in particular, I often was the one to initiate black history programs in my school just because it was kind of never considered a priority or something important that all students should learn. Um, I specifically remember in sixth grade, we were reading a story by a black author and my teacher asked all of the black students in class to read. And I remember sitting there and thinking, this isn't right. I had a lot of issues with my um, with the darkness of my skin, with my hair, with my features. I was always just kind of taught implicitly through society, um, through the books that I read and the TV that I watched that, you know, the way I looked and the way I um, dressed and thought were all just slightly wrong. Um, You know, whiteness was always what was shown as the ideal. Um, White features were shown as what was beautiful. So getting closer to that just always seemed like it should be the goal. Um, And I don't want my child to feel that way. I want to make sure that she knows the way that she was born, the way her hair looks naturally is beautiful. Um, And yeah, I just don't ever want her to feel the way I did, that she was always slightly lesser than. Eric, um, tell me about your experience growing up in school. Where, where, Where did you grow up and were there a lot of other Black kids around? Sure, yeah. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I had a similar experience to Carla in that, you know, there were, we talked about Black history during February, Black History Month, Blackness, and then the importance of uh, the contributions that Black people had made to history and culture uh, weren't really a focus uh, at all. Now, in a minute, we're going to play a big section of your episode from The Nod. And first, I'd just like to ask you to define a few terms that we're going to hear. The first one is HBCU. Yes, uh, historically black college and university. A lot of them were created in the time after the Civil War during Reconstruction. Uh, And these were colleges and universities that were created to educate black people. Um, So like Howard University, Morehouse, Spelman, those types of schools. And did you go to an HBCU? Yes, I'm a a proud graduate of Howard University. And how about you, Carla? 
I went to Rutgers University, so not an HBCU. (laughs) (laughs) You also, in the episode, talk about gender as it relates to West African drumming and dancing. So can you break down what's important to know there? In some cultures, like, there are pretty defined roles for what girls should be doing and what boys should be doing. And that gave me some pause. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, if she wanted to, if they if they offer for, the, like, the, the enrichment activities, for example, if they offered uh, African drumming, that it wasn't just boys who were allowed to drum while the girls were supposed to dance. Because that's the, that's tradition. That's the tradition, yeah. Okay, so let's play the episode, um, and we're going to start with you, Eric, talking to your co-host, Brittany Luce. And in this tape, you're telling Brittany about a conversation that you had had with Carla, your wife, um, where she had laid out the case for sending Eve to an Afrocentric school. And as we've heard, you were not so sure. So after this conversation with Carla, like, my head was swimming with questions, like, Eva's a little kid. She needs, you know, repetition and simplicity. Mm-hmm. And lessons around Black history and culture can just get really, really complicated. You can't really put Jim Crow history on flashcards. Like, you need you need nuance, you know? <laughs> you can't really distill that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. hard. And do I really want to put the responsibility of teaching, like, our daughter about race in somebody else's hands? Mm. So I decided to do the thing that I usually do with big decisions. Well, you made a spreadsheet? Yes, actually, I did make a spreadsheet. But <laughs> <laughs> after my conversation with Carla, I also just like went into research mode. I you know, did some reporting. I called up experts and you know, people who went to Afrocentric schools to just answer some of my questions. So I began my quest for answers by calling them on. Like our best friend, Iman. Yeah. Like, she went to Afrocentric school when she was little. <laughs> I'm very curious. Very curious to hear what she had to say. Hello? How you doing, Iman? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I wanted to ask her, like, what was it like learning about, you know, Blackness at the same time as you learn about your ABCs? I remember, like, counting to 100 in Swahili, um, can you still count to 100 in Swahili? No. Do you no. know how high can you count? Can you count to five? No, I don't remember any of it. And I felt like I remember reading when I went to public school and Afrocentric school. I don't remember what I learned. Mm-hmm. I feel like kids at that age, you know, should be focusing on reading and writing and arithmetic and like... You have not, like, lived enough to be burdened and saddled with, you know, these ideas and these notions about your your racial identity. Mm-hmm. Reading comes first and knowing your numbers. And you, you don't need to know the Swahili version of your numbers. Like, that's not going to help you. So this kind of gave me some pause. Like, learning Swahili is awesome. You know, growing up, Jumbo Means Hello was one of my favorite books. It's a great book. It's a good book. It's a great book. And, like, I know that's not the only thing they're going to be doing. But, like, I'm a little nervous that, like, the that the focus might be more on learning the cultural things, you know, than learning, like, the core academic things she's supposed to learn at that mm, age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that. But I didn't want to just rely on Amon's experience. So I needed to expand my sample size. And like, I heard Carla talking about her friend Marion, that she went to an Afrocentric school. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to her, and she had a much more positive connection to it. 
we did The Wiz as our school play. Wow. Yeah, and I was the standby huh. to play Dorothy. <laughs> And then still counts. No, no, no. Because then, with a little mojo and some, you know, rain dances, little other Dorothy got sick wow. night before. Look yep. at God. Look at God. Just <laughs> blessing him with the flu, Lord. Yes. So <laughs> I was like, I am Dorothy. Do you even? I'm going to ease on down this road, and you're going to follow me. Real talk. That I, I would probably be sitting up there bawling like a little baby, seeing all these little black kids it's, singing the Wiz. Yes. Like, you know, it can feel forced if you see a, a little black kid playing a, a part that is for white people. It's like them feeling the need to have that performance and giving the children something to work for and making it be a black production. Yeah. Like, I don't know that I would have gotten that at another school. The Wiz is one of my favorite movies, and I always wished that my school could have done it because I was obviously deep in the theater, which explains a lot. But um, <laughs> that was actually they never there weren't enough black people. It's crazy when you're a kid; you're so starved for some sort of image like that. So, like to be able to do a production of The Wiz. That is exciting and that is adorable. Yeah, I mean, it's cute, but like a lot of that didn't really become important to me until high school, you know? And we're talking about really, really young kids. Yeah. Like, you know, for some people, like Marion, it really, really matters. But for others, like Amon, you know, it was too early for her to get it. Okay, so at this point, my research has all been like anecdotal, but now I'm feeling like I just need some facts. Mm hmm. So I actually put my questions to someone who I would consider an expert, Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards. She's a developmental psychologist and a professor at Duke University. I look at how we develop. I look at it not only from a racial and cultural perspective and see how race and racism affects your life, um, but also how it affects your life differently at different developmental stages. Are you the person that all your friends go to for this Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I get a lot of calls and emails and text messages that start with, am I crazy or dot, dot, dot? Do, am, am I supposed to act a fool? <laughs> Dr. Bentley Edwards, the good doctor, if you will, <laughs> uh, she cut straight to the point. Like, kids start to understand color and race at very specific ages. Babies recognize that there are color differences. Mm. For African-American children at around three years old, that is when you know that it actually has a meaning. Even if you can't process and have a conversation about it, you start to know that there's something different about my skin and it means something. It means something to the broader world. Honestly, I just thought I had more time until we actually had to, like, deal with that. Like, all the stuff Carla said about self-image, whether Eve is proud of her skin tone, her hair, all that stuff starts really soon. Hmm. And Dr. Bentley Edwards told me it's, like, even more important than I thought. A high racial identity is related to higher academic achievement. So, And so that means that the higher your racial identity, so the more proud you feel of being a Black person or how you see yourself as a Black person, um, those folks tend to also do well in school. But it can't just be be proud to be Black and put a kente cloth on. <laughs> there has to be strong academics and learning um, and social development as well. 
That makes that makes sense to me. Like, you know, if you're feeling self-conscious, you're going to be focusing on that. You're not really going to be focusing on school. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me too. And like, if you run with that logic, it seems like an Afrocentric school would definitely make kids less self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Like that they would come out being really proud of their blackness. So in theory, Afrocentric school is for the win, you know? Case closed. Case closed. I mean, wait, is a episode over? It is not. (laughs) The thing is, like, I know from experience that there's more than one way to be proud to be black. Like, growing up, I learned a lot of stuff that I thought was a part of what it meant to be black that I later realized was just kind of bullshit, you know? (laughs) I mean, like, I grew up thinking it was my job as the black man to lead my household and my people out of the darkness, you know? Oh, I know. So this actually came up. I was talking to someone else I know who went to Afrocentric school, our friend Jordan. I love Jordan. How did they teach you about your role, like, as a man, I guess, like, Mm -hmm. in relationship to, you know, to women? Chivalry was extremely important there. Mm -hmm. Um, So the man was the protector um, and made sure that we looked out for the women in the school. I'm a gay male. I mean, there was times where, like, I was maybe corrected for my, like, feminine traits. Mm. Like, I didn't start dancing until I was in high school. But if I had wanted to dance, I'm not really sure if it would have been embraced because it was kind of just, like, all the women dance and then all the men drum. That's great. Okay, so Jordan's like it. He's an amazing dancer. And I know he's been passionate about it for a long time. And that's crazy to think that at such a young age that if he had wanted to pursue something that he actually— turned out to have a really big talent for and really big love for, he wouldn't have been able to pursue it. Exactly. Like, this is what I didn't want out of an Afrocentric school. Like, if Eve wants to drum, she's going to drum. She will. So that was bad. But, like, I also realized from talking to Jordan that, like, one bad experience doesn't just negate, like, the entire idea of Afrocentric education. Like, Jordan, for the most part, really loved his school, especially compared to the charter school he went to later. One of the things that I didn't experience in Afro Central School was the issue of skin tone. Mm. I'm extremely fair skinned. Mm-hmm. Like, people wonder if my dad is white. Mm-hmm. I never had any comment made to me. It was never really an issue. It was just like, you know, you they really embedded in you that black people need to support one another and to not be distracted by, you know, creating issues with one another. That is really cool. Right? You know, like, I want I want Eve to grow up, you know, and, like, see another Black person mm-hmm. and be like, I want to help that person. You know, mm-hmm. I want to support that person. Yeah. Like, I'm just there for them. Like, that, that to me feels awesome. So are you sold on Afrocentric schools now? Well, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, a part of it is because, like, in the time that I was doing all this— Carla had just wanted me to actually go straight to visiting an Afrocentric school. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't quite have all this in mind. She didn't have all this in mind. But now I feel like I I know enough to, like, walk into an Afrocentric school and, like, honestly judge them fairly. You know, Carla loves you. (laughs) So unlike me, she's not going to roll her eyes. She's probably just going to smile and go with you someplace. But... I just want to let you know that you did way too much. <laughs> I, 
I like to think that I put in extra effort, you know? <laughs> but I don't think that's, a, that's, a, that's in school, that wouldn't be a bad thing. It wouldn't be a bad thing. And this is your child. Exactly. So I'll let it pass. Thank you. But Jesus Christ. <laughs> when we come back, Eric trades in his spreadsheets to get schooled. Stay with us. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> We are back with Eric Eddings and Brittany Luce, and we're picking up where we left off in an excerpt from their podcast, The Nod. So I told Carla that I was finally ready to go visit an Afrocentric school. And after a little bit of searching, we actually found one close to us. So one morning before work, we hopped on a bus and headed over there. I was making a lot of little random jokes. It still seems like a, like we're about to walk into this mythical land, you know, of like, like I feel like the building is like a pyramid. You see a pyramid? It's not a pyramid. It's like a brick building. That's nice. When we first walked up, I actually felt a wave of, of somewhat of relief because they had a sign posted that said that they were closed for Malcolm X's birthday. And I was like, whoa. Okay, maybe they see history like I see history. You got to recognize the important holidays. All right, press the button. So we press a button and they like buzz us in. Um, and so like we walked in and to the left, there was this amazing picture of... Uh, of the of the Obamas, like that looks like 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 regal. There's a beautiful family portrait of the Obamas <laughs> right at the, the door. door with all their names beneath yeah. Then we walk into the actual daycare, and it's just this like massive room. And at that point, you hear just like this chorus of kids in the background. Say hi, guys. Hi. It's a very comforting sound to just hear, like, kids at play. And, like, Black History was everywhere. I see you got the uh, Black History Month sign. Is it is it Black History Month every month? All year. We celebrate Black History all year. We're, we have innovators who were born all throughout the year. Um, we want to learn about those people all throughout the year, too, because it's just important for our children to know about their culture and the people who created things that you don't even think about, like a shoe or a refrigerator or the traffic light. It's just something that we're always going to talk about with them. So we want to make sure that's infused in the lessons, too. There was a, a spot where a bunch of kids had colored pictures of Shirley Chisholm. And that, I mean, you know, that's really dope. Like, there were drawings of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X's glasses. Painted, And there's a little picture of Malcolm X attached to each one. And they say, happy birthday, Malcolm X. Friday is Malcolm X's birthday, so we definitely wanted to celebrate him. And we are always doing art, so we figured why not his glasses, which are one of the most iconic things about Malcolm X. <laughs> I want some green frames. <laughs> so the there was a uh, a very nice woman, a head of emissions. She came up to us, and it felt like talking to your auntie. And that was really nice. So this is our babies, our twos. <laughs> and this group, they learn mostly through song and play. Um, because at two year old, two years old, that's really what they can take in, and that's the best way to try to work with them and try to reach them. I'd heard people describe pieces of this, you know, oh, we learned Swahili, and actually being in the environment and seeing how those things 
happened in like a like a real setting made me understand that like oh you can teach the history and the culture and the learning at the same time our children you can see them learning about their culture and being able to repeat things about their culture in a natural fashion which is natural do we want to be confident in their culture in their background so they can do whatever they want to do in the future no matter where you are what you're going to do and when we asked about all the activities she could do afternoon for them to do we do i always miss one yoga chess swahili african dance class we have an optional african drumming class when you're older you can do violin everything was available to everyone you know the boys were gardening and eve could drum and dance so like i'm looking around this classroom and like this is a classroom i couldn't have even dreamed of as a kid you know and i start to realize like maybe i can trust these people like maybe this is the right thing for you All right, so that's all we're going to play from the episode. You can hear the entire story on Eric's podcast, The Nod. In a minute, Eric and Carla's decision. Don't go away. Oh, you have your mouth pulled, don't you? Advertisements. We're back in the studio with Eric Eddings and his wife, Carla Bruce Eddings. Last we heard, they had visited an Afrocentric school to see if they thought it was a good fit for their two-year-old daughter, Eve. And so, guys, I've got to ask you, of course, what did you decide? She goes to an Afrocentric school. Uh, she's there. She's, she's there, there right now yeah. as we're right speaking. Literally. <laughs> Hopefully having a great time. <laughs> Why? What, what, what changed your mind? Honestly, actually going to the school uh, was really transformative. Like, you know, I got to see how they teach. Uh, and also just, it was it was clear there was support there, like affirming their Blackness in a way that I also didn't have when I was growing up. Uh, and, and I could see where this could be really useful for Eve. Carla, after Eric made this decision that he was on board with the Afrocentric preschool, were you like, why did we go through all this? Why didn't you just visit it in the first place? <laughs> um, no, just because I know him. <laughs> so I knew that if I wanted him to come around, he would have to go through his own process. And I wanted him to be 110% on board. I really didn't want this to be an area where I pushed for it. And he was like, okay, fine. Because this just felt way too crucial. Um, And I also, you know, I need Eve to see that both of her parents really, really want her to love this school. And what does the racial makeup of her class look like? Um, Is it all black? Is there there any diversity within the class? Uh, Within her particular class, it's all black. Uh, And most of the school is black. I don't think of. Yeah, there might be a few biracial students, but yeah, I would say 98% at least black. Yeah. yeah, so she, you know, that 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 alone is an experience that I just I've never had uh, at all. <laughs> uh, so I like I honestly can't. It's hard for me to even fathom that that's just like her norm. Right now, there's a lot of emphasis being put on diversity, right? That like diversity in schools is is where we want to be. So why why would you choose um, more of a homogenous? school at this stage in in Eve's education? 
you know, things are changing in terms of culture and, you know, the kind of media she's consuming. Like, there are already more movies and books that feature characters that look like her. But I feel like we're still not where I'd like it to be in terms of what, like, her seeing herself. So as far as the diversity of her classroom and where she goes every day, I do really like the idea of her being surrounded by these different images of Blackness because I think it's going to be an invaluable benefit to her sense of understanding who she is and loving who she is and recognizing that there are many different ways to be Black, even if she can't articulate it in so many words. I think, you know, we're just setting her up to have that base self-confidence. Even now that she's been there for a couple weeks, I can see like the the tiny uh, glimmers of that, you know, like she came home uh, <laughs> saying like, me, awesome. <laughs> and like, she was just saying that over and over and over again. She's already coming home, understanding the concept that that she is great how she is. Isn't that amazing having a girl? I mean, Carla, like, I feel like you could probably relate to this a few weeks ago when it was like still summer. My daughter, like she looked in the mirror and she goes, I look good. <laughs> I feel good. Yeah. And I was like, I don't remember ever feeling like that. <laughs> yeah. You can't ask for anything more. Um, did you wind up visiting any other schools other than the Afrocentric school? Yeah. So we visited a bunch of schools in our immediate area and like, before I was on board with like sending her to an Afrocentric school, I was all about like, let's just find some place in walking distance. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, a lot of the schools that we saw, uh, something felt like it was kind of missing. It's like it was just more... It seemed more basic. Yeah. I, there's a there's just a level of, I don't know, of care and attention that Eve's school has right now that, that feels so intrinsic to the learning process. Um, whereas the other schools, it just felt more standard. Um, yeah, it was like worksheets. Like Eve already, she's been there only a few weeks since she came home and she's already pointing to letters and it's like E or A. You know, a tip I got when I was preschool shopping was to look at the art on the walls and to see if uh, if it all looked different or if it all looked the same. And if it all looked the same, then you knew that uh, there wasn't a lot of like individuality being um, encouraged. And I know, Eric, that was a that was a concern you had going in. Um, like, what have you noticed with with the art? It, it, do you, do you feel like lots of different ways of being black is being encouraged? Yeah, like the walls and almost every surface was just <laughs> covered in children's projects. Uh, and for example, like one thing that the two year olds do was draw on Malcolm X's glasses, uh, and some of them were like black. Or tortoiseshell, how he wore. Uh, tortoiseshell, maybe it's a stretch. But, uh, <laughs> but some of them were multicolored. And it was, it was clear that they had at least been exposed to the idea of who Malcolm X was. And then they could kind of take that as far as they They might. could interpret it how they wanted. Exactly. <laughs> Did you feel the same way, Carla? Absolutely. When we walked in, it was like the best assault on the senses <laughs> in terms of like the colors and just how many projects they would have the children do Um and yeah, it was in every project you could see the kids' individuality and, you know, the lessons they were learning. Like Malcolm X's glasses, that was something I never, ever did as a child. Um, so it's clear that, like, they approach these things as, oh, yeah, of course the kids need to learn about this. But also they can learn about it however they want and they can take from it whatever they need to. Um, and it's really beautiful to see. 
You know, um, I recently enrolled my daughter, she's seven, in um, a secular Jewish program that is like so laid back that it only meets every other week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for me, it's sort of in response to like religion isn't isn't a big part of my life. I was bat mitzvah. I went to Hebrew school. I didn't love it. But I feel like culturally, it's important for me, for my daughter to like understand what it means to be Jewish and be around other Jewish kids. And um, part of why I did it too is like the current political climate and having pride in being Jewish. And also, I don't want to be the one to like teach her what the Holocaust is by myself. Like I want her to be in a community um, surrounded by supportive people when that comes up and, and I'll be one of the people to talk to her about it. Um, and so I wonder if that's part of it for you too, with sort of what's going on in the country and the national conversation. We had talked before, just even when Carla was pregnant, about the tough conversations that we were going to have to have about racism, about even the police, you know. Mm-hmm. I had kind of mentally prepared myself to do that work. Um, I hadn't prepared myself to share that work. <laughs> and like with the school? With the school, yeah. And going there, I now feel a lot better. And it actually it relieves some of the pressure in knowing that, like, she also has other people who she can go to if she has questions and, and wants to kind of expand that conversation. Uh and it kind of feels more like a, like almost like a team, you know? Well, it's not even like, eventually it's not just about like trusting who you put her with, but like she's going to be out and about mm. doing her own thing, making her own friends who have parents who might not see things the way you do. And she's going to come in contact with people who are going to influence the way she sees the world. Yeah. I mean, thinking about her getting older and, and having to kind of navigate the intersection of what she's been taught at home versus, you know, the influence of her friends and the people that she meets. I remember feeling very heavily influenced by everything my friends said. Thinking about where my education sort of started, it was always, well, you know, Black people were brought over as slaves. That's kind of where it started for me. So I always had this notion that being Black was like, you are disadvantaged from birth. And that's just how it has always been. It kind of like, that's where our story began. And remembering those feelings makes me even more determined now to set up that foundation of, this is what I know. This is what I'm sure of. The reason that we both love this school so much is because they start in Africa. Like, even the names of the classrooms that the different age groups are separated by are named after, like, African tribes. So they're getting that history from the very beginning as just a sense of belonging and as a sense of this is the group I belong to and this is where it came from and this is why I can be proud of where I'm from. You guys, go subscribe to Eric Eddings' great podcast, The Nod, from Gimlet Media. He and his co-host Brittany recommend that you check out a recent episode about the fashion industry called Chitlins at Bergdorf's. And we want you to tell us... What influenced your decision about where to send your kid to school? Leave your thoughts in the comments for this episode. That's episode 139. This podcast is produced by me, Hillary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We had production help today from Jackie Sajiko. 
We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Next week, on The Longest Shortest Time, my husband Jonathan will make his debut on the show. In all seven years that I've been making this podcast, he has never been on it. Kind of can't believe that. Can you? No, no. I feel like I've been just like, like you forgot to pull me out of the box. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) You've been stuck in the box all this time. In honor of Halloween, we are going to be discussing some of the things about parenthood that are spooking us out. Do not miss this show. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear about your family. Tell us something that you think we've never heard before about your parents or about your kids. Right now, we're especially looking for surprising or epic stories about how you got your name or how you came up with your kid's name. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. Hi, all of you out there in Podland. This is Katie Couric here to tell you about the latest episode of my podcast. I'm not an extravagant liver. I live simply, personally. It's with Martha Stewart, the queen of cooking, housewares, and all things domestic. And yes, we of course get into Martha's business empire and her latest cookbook, but we also get a little personal. You never remarried. I have not. Um, I screwed you- that up. Are you sorry about I that? I could have married the next guy or the next guy, but I didn't. I'm I'm not I'm not unhappy about that. I don't. I, and now when I see some of my friends with their husbands, it's, I'm so happy that. <laughs> I mean, we really go there, people. When Mr. Wright comes along, I'll marry him. Are you still open to to of dating? Course. How do you, I'm a how young, does vibrant like, woman. To hear much, much more of Martha, just search for the Katie Couric podcast available on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Da, da.